I'm Professor Shane Greenstein, and you're listening to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiative Seminar, a premier seminar series that hosts thinkers and scholars who are pushing forward research on the digital transformation of the economy by conducting and connecting with cutting-edge leaders, equipping leaders, and building community, the digital initiative seeks not just to study, but also to shape digital transformation. To learn more, check out digital.hbs.edu. Before we get started, as we normally do, we like to go around the room and know who's here. Uh, and so we'll go this way this time. I'll start. Shane Greenstein from the uh, Technology Operations Management Unit, or Tom, for short. Good there, Tom. Carlos Baldwin. Chiara Faronato, Tom. Sanju, Tom. Vahido Tefi. Alice Minicum, Tom Unit. Diane Williams, a tech entrepreneur, Lum Sloan, and Harvard. So, Dave Homer, the director of the Digital Initiative. Uh, Srikan Jagabatala, Tom Unit. Tanya Flynn, Digital Initiative. Uh, Yelg Israeli Marketing. Donald Way, Marketing. Tom Wamano, Marketing. Yael Gusta Cocaine, Tom. Alan Cormac, Tom. Jamming, Tom. Ben Schiller, Lawrence. Uh, Gregor Schubert, PhD student in Sam Light, also PhD student Frank Mentor, PhD Frank Mentor, PhD Frank Mentor, PhD Frank Mentor, PhD Frank Mentor, Neil Thompson, visiting professor here and research scientist at the Computer Science and AI Lab at MIT. Paul HBS, extraction. Chef Bolzer, organization behavior. Mike Toffel, Tom. Well, what a lovely treat to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. And it's, it's just incredible to not only realize how many people I know around the room, but also to see how effective you're being in pulling together a really eclectic mix of different people. Um, I, I want to tell you all that I love interruptions, I love questions, so uh, I was said to, I was asked to set ground rules, the ground rules are there are no ground rules. Um, interrupt, ask questions. This is work that we've been doing now for around two years. Um, I think it's work that I consider to be really squarely in the new possibilities for the digital economy. It's work where we're taking, I think, quite an ambitious view. We're asking whether we can use machine learning techniques in a completely new and different way to design market systems de novo, uh, essentially without, it, without needing to use any theory. And I say that as, a, uh, as somebody who's definitely not anti-theoretical. I do a lot of theory work. Um, and quite a lot of my work has related to auction design, mechanism design more broadly, market design questions. And I, as other people who work in that field, have, you know, off, over time become somewhat painfully aware that these problems where we want to try to design optimal economic systems to solve problems we care about are incredibly analytically challenging. Um, and 
The question is whether we can use new techniques to design. And if you want to have an analogy in mind, you might think about just as people are using deep learning pipelines to try to discover new machinery, uh, new materials or new drugs, can we use deep learning pipelines to try to discover new designs for economic systems? That's what this talk is about. Um, just to set the scene, a little bit of background from economic theory, William Vickery, 1961, tells the world how to sell one item. He says if you want to sell one item, uh, in his case, to maximize the welfare created, he says you should use a second price auction. He says that you should uh, collect the bids, say 12, 10, and 4. In this case, you would sell to the bidder whose value is 12, 4, 10. Okay, so that was Vickery's idea. This is a second price auction. Looks a little bit strange if you haven't seen this before, but if you think about it a little bit, it's similar to the way eBay sells things. There are a lot of reasons why it's not the same, but it's similar in style. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, just a little bit of kind of notation. <coughs> We're going to try to avoid notation as much as we can today, but I do want to set the scene a little bit by using these simple examples. So in this case, the bids would be a vector B. It's an n-dimensional vector. Um, we have an allocation rule G, which in this case, I'm assuming the bids are sorted. And the, the bid from the first bidder is the highest. So the victory allocation rule G sub I B will be 1. If I'm the bidder in position 1, 0 otherwise, I don't get the item. And the payment rule will be uh, I pay the second highest bid, B sub 2. If I'm allocated the item, zero otherwise. Notice that you already see the structure of uh, two functions. There's an allocation function and there's a payment function. Uh, what Vickery showed us is that this design is incentive compatible. It's a very special form of that. It's strategy proof. Strategy proof means that your dominant strategy, if you're a bidder playing this game, is to bid your true value. If you think about it, if you're, if you're the bidder whose value is 12, you know, you may as well just say 12. If you say 11, you'll still pay 10 anyway. Uh, if you say 11, not knowing how other people will bid, you may forfeit the chance to win. It's something you would have been willing to pay. So the key insight for strategy proofness of the second price auction is the decoupling between the amount you bid and the amount you pay. Okay, so that was victory 61. Roger Myerson, 81. 20 years later, says, okay, um, you've got an item to sell, and now you don't want to just give the item to he or she who values it the most, you want to maximize expected revenue. That's what Myerson says. So um, he sets up an optimization problem. He says that we want to find the G and the T, those two functions, that maximize the expected total revenue. So I'm just taking the sum over the bidders, and then I'm going to impose incentive compatibility. I'm going to say that I need my rules of the game to be incentive, com incentive compatible. Uh, Myerson solves this problem. He solves it using the idea of virtual valuations. He's going to use knowledge of the distribution function. This is the distribution function from which agent I's values are sampled. And uh, he's going to say that you should calculate what he calls a virtual value. Uh, details of that, of the form of that function don't matter. 
Notice that he uses the distribution function. Um, he's going to allocate the item to the agent with the highest virtual value, and then he's going to charge the winner their critical value, which is the analogy to Vickery's idea. It's the smallest amount such that they would have still been ranked in position one. So notice you have the ind independence again. He proves that this is revenue optimal. And by the way, it's also strategy proof. So then the question is, well, how do we sell two items to maximize expected revenue? And the answer is that even though this has been a problem that's been very widely studied, the 27 years after Myerson, we don't have a complete analytical understanding of this question. Hard to believe, but true. Um, let me tell you some things that we do know. So we do know from Manelli Vincent 2006 that if there's a single bidder, okay, what does it mean to have an auction with one bidder? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, you can still ask if there's one bidder, if I'm selling to Jan and, and I know something about her distribution over values, I can still ask how can I maximize expected revenue? The structure of what I'm going to do is going to basically make you offers, and you're going to decide what you want. Um, so what Manelli Vincent says, they say, suppose we have one bidder, two items, and that the bidder's value for each item is IID uniform 01. Then here's the optimal allocation rule. This is the plot. X-axis is the value of the bidder for item 1. Y-axis is the value of the bidder for item 2. There's a region here where we don't allocate. There's a region here where we allocate both items. Region here where we allocate one but not two. Up here we allocate uh, two but not one. And you can pull the payments out from this picture as well. Okay, so there's one, one place where we have an answer. And there are other optimal design results as well. In recent years, computer scientists have been getting in the game as well. Um, for one bidder, two additive item variations. And what is, like, what, what variations? Well, not uniform zero one, different distributions. There are intricate, interesting analytical results. Um, for one bidder, two items unit demand. Unit demand is where Jan only wants one item. She has a value for item one, a value for item two, I give her both, the value she realizes is the maximum of the two. Uh, that, that was solved in 2011. But okay, what about selling to two bidders? Only late 2017, a theoretical computer scientist, Andy Yao, wrote a paper <coughs> that gave the first analytical revenue optimality results for selling two items to two bidders. And to simplify the problem enough to be able to solve the problem, he said that he was going to assume that the support of the values were either 0.5 or 1. So it's a two-element support distribution. But then with that, he was able to uh, show us how to optimize expected revenue. So um, this is roughly the state of the art. 
please. So, so just trying to understand, what do you mean by it's hard to, uh, we don't know. Does it mean that you can't compute for solve the optimization problem, or we don't know if there's a solution to the optimization problem, or are you looking for some clean analytic, whatever that means, yeah. outcome? Yeah. So I think there are two, two things to think about. <clears throat> One is the, the design problem. <coughs> so, you know, Myerson formulated that find the G and the T that maximize expect, expected revenue. That's one problem that could be hard in some sense. And the other problem to think about is, okay, you've, you've designed your auction. Now is it hard to somehow run the auction? And I've done work on that. If you have auctions for multiple goods and combinatorial preferences, that gets hard, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the first problem. We're talking about the design problem being hard. Now, what do I mean by hard? Um, and why is it hard? First of all, why is it hard? The why is because you have to <coughs> handle these incentive compatibility requirements. These are things that somehow that say things like, um, a bidder with this type cannot benefit by pretending to be a bidder with another type. And these requirements get very hard to handle. The way I think about it is they are global constraints on your design. They're, they're, because it has to hold between all pairs of inputs. And um, another more technical thing to say, uh, those of you who work with economic theory will know that there's a big qualitative difference in terms of analytical tractability between settings where your private information is one number and settings where your private information is more than one number. This is called the one-dimensional versus multi-dimensional distinction in the mechanism design auction design literature. And <coughs> we have good, useful characterizations for how to solve that optimal design problem in the one-dimensional case. That was Myerson's result. He said if it's monotone in the right way, then things will work. Uh, we have generalized characterizations for the multi-dimensional settings. However, they're very, very hard to work with. So it becomes analytically intractable. Mm -hmm. There are also computational complexity results in the literature as well. So back in 2002, uh, Vince Conister and Thomas Sandholm at CMU wrote a paper that introduced the idea of using computation to solve the design problem. And this, in a sense, is the latest version of that idea. And what they said was they said something like, let's imagine that we can discretize all the possible inputs and write down a huge integer program to kind of represent explicitly the functions that we're trying to search over. As you can imagine, that doesn't scale. And you can also write down NP-hard style complexity results as well. Okay, so then I should think of this as like maybe the constraint set doesn't have an efficient description. Yes, I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. Yep. Any other questions? Just a, just yeah. a point. So rank auctions, like the Google auction, yes. which is the second price yes. quality weighting. You're, you're not. I mean, I have a, some intuition on how that one works, but yeah. we're not thinking that, or is that a special case here? It only works under very narrow circumstances? Yeah, or? so, no, that's great. So, um, the, the, the auctions that are used for sponsored search are, um, even though they may not appear to be it, they're one-dimensional problems. Why is that? The reason is, is that you bid your value for a click, and then what I do is I project that one number down to an expected value for the positions on the page. And because your private information is just that one number, then I can use Myson's theory. And if I wanted to design the optimal, the revenue optimal solution to that problem, 
I know how to do it. It's not what GSP does, but if I wanted to, I could. I see, and it's the rank that makes it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the crucial thing there, and that your question lets me also take the opportunity to make the following point. Machine learning has been used a lot in the design of markets, but it's been used typically in that narrow way, which is that I'm gonna use machine learning to predict how to map that one number to these multiple numbers. That's not what this talk's about. This talk's about designing the whole thing uh -huh. using think. machine learning. Okay, that's very helpful. Yeah. So can you give us examples of in what settings you need this machinery that you currently don't have the machinery for, like in the real world? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, to give you uh, one concrete example, um, I had a student, uh, so I should have said that the main PhD student on this work is Zhu Fang, who's a PhD student at Harvard. He spent last summer at Facebook, and they're looking to see whether they can use this machinery to think about how to redesign. You know, he's in the research group, so I don't want to over, overstate it to you. But they're looking to understand whether they can make different trade-offs between, say, fairness, efficiency, and revenue in the design of these multi-item slot-style auctions. Yeah, so all the different types of optimizations they can make in that, that general space. Isn't just another example that Google could go away from having one uh, bid that you entered, you could bid separately for each slot? Yes, maybe, maybe there would be interest in that. That's right. That's right. And um, I mean, obviously, there are market design questions everywhere. And I think oftentimes at the moment, we solve them somewhat heuristically because we kind of cannot handle the multi dimensional aspect of them. OK. so. Uh, this is a talk about using deep learning to try to attack these problems. So here's my one slide on deep learning. Can you speak to how the, the, the models on like for the allocation of spectrum uh, yes. has sort of helped move these, these theories along if, yes. in any way? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, so the frontier of applied market design in recent years has been advanced quite a lot through selling wireless spectrum, uh, including by the FCC, but around the world as well. And um, those are very interesting problems, typically because you have to worry about the packaging of the items, the complementarities. I want New York and Philadelphia and DC. Right? So there's a package I care about. Um, it was actually those problems that first pulled me into thinking about combinatorial auctions. Uh, the advances that have been made there have been um, essentially the following. Uh, first of all, not, not revenue optimal auction design. That's out of scope for those problems. But what they have been doing is they've recognized that the generalization of Vickery's ideas do not often do not work correctly for these settings with complementarities. And so they've been developing new pricing rules, but it's somewhat, I think, um, even the people who design these auctions, if they're in the room, they would agree that the design approaches are motivated by theory, but somewhat heuristic still. But there's lots of good advances being made, but I don't think it directly plays into what I'm talking about today. And I also, um, I'll, I'll show you some of the things we can scale to, but we, I, I don't think we can currently scale to combinatorial problems either. 
Yes. And just in the one-dimensional case, like kind of in the ad auction case I'm thinking about, um, I'm trying to get a sense of like the landscape of how far theory has come in like helping to improve practice and kind of whether we should be thinking about other uh, approaches even in that simplified context. Like I guess I've been surprised by uh, how much gain has come from kind of like uh, some of the more straightforward theory like kind of Varian, Athey, uh, Edelman, Ostrovsky. Yeah. Um, and then I'm thinking about the Yahoo experiment from a yeah. few years ago Yeah. Um, where kind of even using basic reserve pricing stuff that they saw big gains. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I think that most of the theory we have is for the one-dimensional setting. I guess that's probably the most I want to say in terms of what we can add. Like, there's that, and then we know how to generalize Vickery, and we don't. Which can handle multi-dimensional. <coughs> we don't really have good theory. I mean, I'm overstating it, and I know there are theorists in the room, all my friends from the particular PhD program against the wall. So I'm overstating things a little bit, but okay. All right. So let me talk about deep learning. Um, it's only one slide. I'll talk about what we do in a bit. But So you all know there's a lot of progress has been made in particular parts of the AI research agenda in recent years, in particular around perception-type challenges and also natural language-type challenges. And one of the big advances that's been made <coughs> has been through these more elaborate exotic architectures uh, sometimes, for example, convolutional neural nets. This is a cartoon of that. I'm not going to get into the details on that. That 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 are richer, higher, more par higher parametric than we would have dared to <coughs> work with in previous years. What 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 changed? Well, uh, improved tool chains, improved access to computation, including GPUs, much larger data sets, um, and ability, I think, through open source software to very rapidly iterate on designs. And these are the various things that have changed to be able to lead to progress. And, you know, the cartoon people will often draw older algorithm, this sad red curve, you know, deep learning algorithms look more like the blue curve, more data, more performance. So they have kind of the capacity to absorb more data and improve their performance. Um, and what we wanted to do in this work was we wanted to ask whether we could use deep learning-like ideas for optimal end-to-end -end economic design. So for the purpose of this work, we think about the deep learning framework. Um, and honestly, I'm just going to really be talking about multi-layer neural networks at the moment. We're still fairly early in our research agenda. So if you want, if, you know, just think about neural networks. We are going to think about these as nonlinear function approximators. Remember I said that the optimal design problem is to find functions with good properties? So we're going to think about using the machine learning framework, the technology, to pull out functions with good properties. So it's, it's, if you like, it's, it's, it's using the machine learning pipeline as a way to optimize, as a way to solve the design problem. We, um, we, we could either generate the data that we use uh, by sampling from distributions. That's what would happen if you were thinking as an auction theorist. You normally assume you know what the distribution is. You try to find the optimal design. And, uh, and so it's quite reasonable to say, OK, for a distribution like, like this, let me go ahead and generate lots of data. 
Um, or you could say this is an approach to data-driven economic design, where the data that you use is data that's, uh, that you're, you're pulling from ex some existing platform. Maybe with appropriate work to try to get to values of the underlying participants in the market, not just the bids that they place. So that there would be work to do that. And that's how we're going to think about machine learning in this context. Um, okay, so now let me get a little bit into the details. Yeah. So how, how are you thinking about this? Because what, like, you know, there's a lot of work on deep learning, but it is a universal function of approximators. That that seems great. But it's this idea of sort of out of sample seems like a, pro a challenge for you because like lots of the strategies that you want to roll out are things that you've probably never seen in any empirical data. So how do you think about, like clearly I think you, you should be able to do a good job on the stuff that you can see, but presumably you want to roll out other stuff. Yeah, so the, the, the way we're going to think about it is not so much that we're going to be worrying about strategies. Um, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be imposing incentive compatibility on the design. So we're, we're actually, sorry, I'm going to talk about that now, but we're not going to talk, we're not going to have to worry, have we got all the relevant strategies? Okay. So, so, sorry, just at a conceptual level, you, you think of deep learning if you have like a hard prediction task, right? But you have a hard optimization problem that you're trying to solve. And uh, at least if you have hard optimization problem, deep learning is not the first thing that comes to mind. So. Like what are we doing? Why, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. yeah, so let me give you that high level. So um, some of the earlier literature on trying to use computational techniques, optimization techniques to solve these problems, as I said earlier, kind of discretized the input space and had this more explicit representation of the functions. You know, if the, if the input is in this voxel, then, should my out, then who should I give the item to? that kind of explicit representation. So one thing I want here is I, is I don't want that. I, I want to have a parametric, I want to have a parameterized family of functions where for a given parameterization, I want to have a representation of a continuous mapping from all possible inputs to the market and, all, and for each one, an allocation and payments. And then what are we going to do? we are going to appeal to these nice uh, frameworks to be able to quite quickly prototype rich families of functions that are parameterized. And then what else are we going to do? We're going to do something that shouldn't work, but that is working for quite a few machine learning problems, and for which there is some theory beginning to be developed. We're going to use stochastic gradient descent for a problem that's very non-convex. And the, the other thing we're going to do is we're going to have to handle incentive compatibility. That's the technical innovation. Uh, and I'll explain how we do that. Okay. The, there will be some theory, by the way. But the theory that I show you, most of the results that I'll show you will be computational results. Um, um, we do have some theory as well, but not, not on the ability to optimally solve that non-convex problem. There we're relying on showing you, com you computational results. Okay. All right, so uh, now I have to show you a little bit about our neural network architectures. Um, 
This is the architecture for an allocation role. It looks complicated. It's actually not especially complicated. Let me explain this. So this is just an example. We have, we, we have other things going on as well. But in this one example, suppose there are n bidders and m items. Okay? Uh, and suppose that the uh, valuation functions are additive. So if I give you two items, your value is the sum of your value for the two items. So what I need in my neural network is I need inputs and outputs, and then there'll be uh, hidden layers which will be doing simple computation and we'll be transforming the input into the output. So what's the input? The input is um, m numbers for bidder one, the value of the bidder for the first item, the value of the bidder for the mth item and then repeat for the other bidders. So that's the input. The input's exactly what you would think it is. The output is going to specify a distribution for a given input. It needs to specify a distribution over allocations. So for item one, this will be the probability that item one is assigned to bidder one. This will be the probability that item one is assigned to bidder n. And so forth, this is for item m. And I can make sure I have a well-defined probability distribution on my output layer by using what's called a softmax to make sure everything adds up to one in the appropriate way. And then what's special about a neural network is that these little computers in the middle of the network are doing nonlinear, they're, they're doing nonlinear calculations. They're taking a linear combination of the input, they're pushing that linear sum through a nonlinear function. In this case, we're using sigmoid something kind of looks like this, and then those form the inputs to the next layer. And in the networks that we're currently working <coughs> with, this was the very first architecture we've used in our work, uh, we're doing something very simple. We're just using fully connected hidden layers. So, it's, so it's, it's not cleverly architected in the form of the convolutional neural networks. But we're working on new variations now. I have time at the end, I'll explain why we're doing that. So let me pause. Does anybody have any questions about the kind of the basic setup of the so the thing I think I didn't say is where are the parameters? So the parameters live inside each one of these little computational units. So this little computational unit has a weight for each one of the inputs. And there's another parameter which is the bias in that unit. Uh, so think about the parameters of living in the hidden nodes. So I have a parametric representation of a flexible um, uh, nonlinear function approximator. And, um, Kind of the important property about it is that it's differentiable. For a given input, I can compute a gradient for any parameter I care about um, and compute the gradient of the parameter <coughs> with respect to the output that I care about. So if I push a parameter a little bit, how will the distribution of allocation change? That's what I'm going to care about. Okay. So we have an allocation network. We also have... Um, <coughs> Okay, I thought I had one more picture. We also have, oh yeah, this is good. So forget about the gray arrows. Uh, just look at this bit. I'll explain the gray arrows in a second. We also have a payment network. Um, they're actually components of the same big network. Um, the, payment net, the payments work in an even simpler way. You have the same inputs. You have hidden layers. Um, at the end of this, you just um, are going to compute this thing that we denote P tilde 1. That's just a number between 0 and 1 that will represent the fraction of your 
bid that we're going to charge you. So that's how we'll represent how much you pay. So this is, um, this is the fraction of the bid on the items that I allocate to you. That's how much you will pay. Do you see that here? The amount the bidder one pays is this fraction multiplied by the total expected value the bidder has for the items that we allocate. So now I've told you how we can <coughs> represent payment rules, and I've told you how we can allocate an allocation rule, and I think I may even have one more picture where I'll show you the whole, no, I don't have the picture where you see really how these things glue together. What I do want to say is that the objective, um, when, you, when you train machine learning models, you minimize loss. Uh, loss is typically predictive accuracy. What we do here is we minimize negated expected revenue. So what's, what's minimizing negated expected revenue? It's maximizing expected revenue. Um, and so this will play the role of my loss function. And the difficult thing, or the, let's say the technically intricate thing, is that if I just told a machine learning engine okay, find parameters in your allocation net and your payment net that um, do a good job with regard to this loss function, then they're, they're, they're going to learn essentially to charge everybody as much money as they can, and it will be very non-incentive aligned. Remember, Vickery's auction was strategy-proof. Myerson's auction was strategy-proof. Strategy-proofness is a very useful property because it means that we can say something about what we would expect to happen in the equilibrium of the design. And so the challenging thing is I need to find a way to impose incentive compatibility. I'm gonna explain how to do that um, in the next part of my talk. One thing I wanna emphasize, because this sometimes <coughs> leads to some confusions, I don't have any training data here. I, I don't have any labeled, I have data, but I don't have any labeled examples. Nobody has to come along and tell me how to allocate items or how to charge. Um, all that I need is I need to be able to generate data from a distribution. That's all I need. And then I'm gonna just try to use the framework of machine learning to solve an optimization problem. Questions about this before I move on? Yeah. Correct. So this is a this is a this is an additive valuation model, meaning that if you have value one dollar for the water and value two dollar for the sandwich, if I give you both, your value is three. Yeah. Right. So so we do have some results in the paper for handling. Uh, some combinatorial auction examples where you have values on packages. Um, in principle, things generalize because you have to be able to represent the valuation. So now you might have one part of your input will be the synergy effect if I give you A and B, uh, or the substitutes effect. It could be a negative number. And then I just have to have a right way. I, also have, an, I have to have a nice way to be able to evaluate your value for a given allocation that I calculate. The nice thing is that I can, I can represent the allocation in the same way. 
I can still have a distribution over item one, a distribution over item two. I don't need to start representing distributions over packages because I can capture the correlation through what happens inside the network. Um, so yeah, so we do have some results on that, but I want to say that the machinery we have is not ready for prime time for very big revenue optimal combinatorial auctions. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, sure, I'm asking the question not with the right terminology, but how um, how much is the solution, sort of the, 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 the decisions, the choice of the parameters, depend on the number of bidders, the number of items, and the distribution of the valuations? Because those are things that you need to know to design it. Yes. <clears throat> Great question, and the answer is at the moment, it's all completely dependent on that. Okay. At the moment, we're doing the simplest possible thing, which is that we would, we would train a different network for each number of items and each number of bidders. We have generalizations we're currently working on, but these results, that's what they do. Okay. And they're distribution dependent, and I cannot tell you how robust they are, because I haven't tried to do that yet, how robust they are if we change aspects. What I will say is that these questions around robustness, just to take that as an example, these are things that are getting a lot of attention in general in machine learning. And the hope is that as there are new improvements made generally, we can bring them into this research agenda. In regard to numbers of bidders and numbers of items, we're looking to exploit symmetries in the right way so that we can have one network that will handle multiple bidders and multiple items. And we have some provisional results on that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, I'm still a little stuck on the no training labels. Yes, okay. Can you explain that a little more? I'm thinking yes. like if I want to train and find the right or yes. parameters yes. to work, I need it's a supervised learning problem. So what am I missing on the Yes, training? right. So normally, normally when we have a loss function, it might represent, say, some approximation of our zero-one error with regard to labels. Like we say dog, it's a cat. Um, that gives you a well-defined loss function. But all that I need, and, and then what we do if we're using a deep learning framework is I use gradient descent, like some slightly fancy version of gradient descent to try to move through my parameterized function space to find one with low loss. So all that we've done here that's different is we've um, defined a different kind of loss function. And here the loss function is, uh, it just, to be well-defined, it needs to be something I can evaluate for every input and every set of parameters in my network. And what is it here? It's add up how much money I collected from people on that input for this parameterization and negate it. And that's my loss function. Um, so I think that one, one way maybe to think about it is that I have an optimization problem to solve. It's find the parameters that maximize expected revenue subject to incentive compatibility. And the insight is that we can push, we can try to solve that using the standard frameworks from, from the recent machine learning literature. Like you don't need the grand truth there. I don't need, like nobody needs to, I don't need Roger Myerson. Right. <laughs> so with this, just to push on that a little bit, so, so this is, the contribution in that respect goes well beyond any type of optimal economic design, right? You're saying for any optimization problem that we might have. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, so I don't want to take credit for that because 
there is now a recent literature in machine learning that's, uh, again, asking kind of silly things, but it's getting interesting results. Like, can I use deep learning to solve traveling salesperson problems? Yeah, yeah. People are beginning right. to ask that question right now. Right. Uh, maybe I can model it as a reinforcement learning problem where each action that I take is a new decision by my algorithm. So, the, I see. so but again, we're, we're paying attention and we want to bring those ideas into this agenda. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Question. You said you're using these gradient descent methods and yet you don't have convexity. So do you have to have something like a simulated milling type of thing or something to allow you to get out of the local uh, minima or maxima? I uh, know, but we are going to use randomization because we're, we're, we're going to use um, stochastic gradient descent. What that means is that we're going to pick a random subset of our data and calculate a gradient on that random subset. And then pick another random subset and calculate a gradient. So that does the same thing. But there's no theory. There's no. It, I cannot tell you that this will find. <laughs> Sounds good. And there is some theory now, actually, but it's not. It's not my theory, and it doesn't apply to something that looks like this. Uh, yes, and then I think I'm going to move on because I do want to show you some results. Yeah. Go ahead. I wanted to pick up on this no training levels. So if I understand, I mean, what you've basically done here is you, you built a simulation network that says I have these assumptions about what the bidding functions are going to be for different people, and therefore I can create sets of those, as sort of as many as I'd like, and I know the evaluation function at the end because that's just sort of a, like how much revenue I get, and so that's actually just a calculation I can do. And so what you end up having is rather than having sort of training data for the real world, what you have is sort of a principles-based version of creating your features and then a calculation that gives you your efforts. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, I think you could think about it like that. W one thing I think I haven't said is I'm going to do the following. I'm going to generate my data assuming that my bidders will be truthful. And then I'm going to make sure that the networks I learn will align incentives. So I'm not going to have to speculate about what strategic behavior will look like. OK. Good. So let me move on. Um, going to skip through fairly quickly some of this. Those of you that are familiar will probably get something out of it. If not, the, the main point is that I want to get to showing you some of the things this can do. Um, so excuse me for going quickly. So there's a concept of strategy proofness in economic theory that says that um, you, want, you, you want every bidder for all possible inputs to get more utility by being truthful than by making a misreport. It's the idea of strategy proofness. Um, we can also define the idea of regret. This is, how much do you regret having been truthful? So my regret uh, as bidder i at input, at, at input v, v is a vector here, it's a value for every bidder. My regret is um, the maximum utility I could have got for any possible misreport minus the utility I get when I'm truthful. So notice regret is always non-negative, and notice that if my auction is strategy proof, my regret will be zero on every input. Um, and in particular, ignoring measure zero events, things with no mass regard to the distribution, um, then I can equivalently write strategy proofness as saying that the expected regret is zero. Uh, so you might think naively what you do is you just say the regret should be zero everywhere. I have a distribution here, so instead I'm going to say the expected regret should be zero. And remember, regret is non-negative, so this is up to measure zero, going to give me strategy proofness if I can do it. So how to achieve incentive compatibility? Um, what we are going to do is, um, see, I think I'm missing a slide here. Apologies. 
what we're going to do is we're going to solve a constrained optimization problem where we are going to ask that the uh, expected regret be zero. And the way we're going to go about solving that is we're going to use an approach called augmented Lagrangian optimization. Um, it's, it's a, if you've heard of Lagrangian optimization, it's a variation on that that does have some nice theoretical results if the problem is convex. Um, what you should think about it essentially doing is that I now don't just care about minimizing my loss. Remember, my loss was my negated revenue. I'm also going to penalize my objective if there is regret. I don't like regret. Regret means I'm not, I'm not incentive aligned. And um, here's a Lagrangian on that regret term. Um, and because we're using what's called augmented Lagrangian, we also have these quadratic terms as well. And essentially, you're going to fix rho, and then the augmented Lagrangian recipe will tell you how to update lambda. Now, um, we can now use stochastic gradient descent, not just on the loss function, but also on these regret terms. And um, we also need to think about how to uh, um, kind of calculate a gradient on this regret term. And we do that in two ways in our work. One way is that we can sample possible misreports. So you should already have in mind this idea that I'm sampling from my value distribution to generate my training data. And now in addition to that, for every value profile, for every bidder in that value profile, I'm going to generate a bunch of additional samples, which are the possible strategic uh, manipulations you could use. And I'm going to, by picking, say, a bunch of those, I'm going to um, be able to estimate the regret that that bidder has for being truthful at the current input. Uh, it's an approximation. <laughs> I, I, I haven't sampled the complete space of misreports. Um, we have another thing that we're doing in our recent work, and all of the results I'll show you will take this approach. Rather than sampling misreports, think about as an inner kind of gradient step, I drop a candidate misreport, and I'm going to push that candidate misreport uh, through report space as a way to find out your optimal misreport given the current parameterization. Maybe I'll just show you. I have an animation of that. I think it might be fun to see. Let me show you that right now. Um, I think if I just minimize this, and then let's see if this will play again. OK, great. This is kind of fun. Um, should be, there should be a second panel to this. OK, just showing one panel, but that's OK. So it's going to restart in a second. When it restarts, there will be red dots, which will represent the possible misreports. And because this design is truthful, the red dots will all converge to the true report. You see how they start spread out, and then they follow gradients, and they end up all realizing that the right thing to do is to make the truthful misreport. Um, and this is a picture that should be familiar from the one I showed you earlier in my talk. So think about this as just being part of the computations that we're doing as an inner loop to find the right misreports that people should use given the current parameterization as a way to get at the amount to which we're not strategy proof. Because I need to be improving both revenue and failure of strategy proofness as I design. Question, yeah. So I guess as I was actually 
waiting to ask about adversarial networks. So yeah. it seems like there's less that you'd actually have to program into it to use adversarial networks versus sort of the method that you proposed earlier. And so, and there's a well-developed sort of set of tools, I believe, for adversarial networks that's been used for other problems. Um, is there a reason you don't just rely on adversarial networks? Good. So let's just spend a minute on this because I think probably not everybody's in the adversarial space, okay. but let's just spend a minute on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, great, great time to ask the question. This has an adversarial spirit to it, and maybe, maybe why you asked. I, I, I think this in a gradient step, it's a little bit like there's another learner trying to defeat the main learner. So actually, I, I think this is adversarial in spirit, what's happening here behind the scenes. Um, but um, I think I'll maybe take it offline, but we have thought quite a lot about whether we can use generalized adversarial networks as a main design paradigm. Um, and I think the main thing we have currently concluded is it's not going to lead to incentive compatibility. And I really want incentive compatibility. I think it might lead to an equilibrium analysis, but I, I'm actually looking for strategy-proof designs, I, and I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Okay. Okay. Um, let me see if I can get this back up. View uh, full screen. Okay. Now I know I'm going to lose some of you at once. I want to at least flash some results, and then we'll slow down again. Um, so just as a recap, RegretNet. The network has an allocation and a payment component. Each are fully connected hidden layers. The training data comes from sampling a known distribution on bidder values or from a current deployed platform. We make use of augmented Lagrangian combined with stochastic gradient descent to solve an incentive-constrained training problem. And what we're doing is we're optimizing expected revenue, penalized for non-zero regret, adjusting Lagrangian multipliers during training. Um, we are using the TensorFlow library. We have this coded in PyTorch. We're about to open source everything. We're using Adam Solvoy we're running on one NVIDIA GPU core. Details here on learning rate, mini batch size, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, data for us is free, so there's no problem generating as many as 640,000 inputs. It's free, we have the distributions, just generate. Uh, and at the moment, we're using that adversarial gradient approach to compute the regrets. We use one misreport, not all of the red dots, just one red dot, and we push it 25 steps in each of the inner loops. So then, first of all, can we recover existing results? So let me remind you that Manelli Vincent solved in 2006 the one bidder, two item problem. What I've done here is I've, this is their solution. This is another visualization of their solution. This is how you should allocate item one. This is how you should allocate item two. We train our network and that's what it learns. We didn't tell the network any economic theory other than you should care about incentive compatibility. So when you're training this network, you basically hit a button once you programmed in and let it run? Yes. Or are you, is it take a lot of sort of, you don't need to sort of do a lot of sort of changes to get it to converge to that. You just hit a button and let it run. All of the results on the paper are for the same setup. We have had to do some work to get a setup that's working, but we're not retuning it okay. for the different settings. Yes? So, so usually in these settings, uh, imposing the constraints becomes a, a challenge, yes. right? So I'm assuming you do observe non-zero regret. Yeah, I'll show you that in a second. So this is, this is the first result. Uh, this is a recent analytical result by Daskalakis et al. Um, for 
different uniform distributions. Uh, that's what the network learns. Notice that it's not exactly the same. Um, I'll show you the revenue results in a second. It turns out um, that it, it, it looks like the idea that this should be 0.5 and the network has learned more of a blend. Um, it turns out that doesn't look important from a revenue perspective. These are low probability parts of the design space. So the network doesn't care very much about getting it exactly right in that region. Um, here's the Pavlov results I told you about with unit demands. So I started seeing these pictures. I was like, okay, this is interesting. Um, and uh, here's another Pavlov results, uniform 2-3 unit demands. Um, we were very happy when we learned this zero triangle down here. <laughs> that was very hard to learn because that's, a, that's kind of not a very important revenue part of the space. Um, okay, so just to summarize what I've shown you so far, and on your point, uh, excuse the typo here. Um, here. Here are those settings. Here's the optimal revenue, and here's the revenue we learn. And here's our um, um, single agent expected ex post regret. The, um, so very small. One thing you will notice in this setting is that we're getting slightly more expected revenue than optimal revenue. Why? Because we're not exactly imposing the incentive compatibility constraints. Now, I don't mean to rush past this. Um, I will be giving this talk in a probably slightly different flavor to the MIT Harvard Microecon Seminar in a few weeks. And I can guarantee that the microeconomists will give me a hard time about not having exact strategy proofness. And I don't want to run, I don't want to hide that from you. I think that's a good debate to have. And my personal opinion is this is probably good enough, but it's kind of <laughs> hand wavy, how do I know? So th 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 there is a debate to have here, yes. But, but could you use some sort of a rounding to Sacrifice some revenue. I mean, I guess the question is, like, what is more important? Right? Yeah. Hard constraint, even hard constraint. Right, that? right. We don't currently know how to patch this up to get exact strategy proofness. We've, we've thought quite a lot about it. It seems hard. But let me keep going. So then the question is, can we discover new designs? We've, we've, we've benchmarked. It seems like we can recover the state of the art economic theory results, modulo not being quite strategy proof. Can we do new things? So one thing we said is, well, you know that Yao result that had two supports? Let's have three supports. And um, we have a new problem now, which is that we don't have the optimal design to compare to because there is no analytical solution to this problem. So what we do instead is we do things like we benchmark against item-wise myosin and bundle-wise myosin. Those are these two lines. This is our test revenue as we train. Um, this is our test regret as we train. So why is, so notice the revenue settles down higher than our two baselines, that's good news. Why is revenue falling? It's falling because as we train, we tighten incentive compatibility. That's why revenue falls as we train, regret falls. Um, this is a generalization of Minnelli-Vincent to two bidders. Remember there were no two bidder uh, designs. So now two bidder, two item uniform. Again, we end up with higher revenue than the baselines. Regret is essentially zero. Um, okay, but what about scaling up? What if we went to three bidders, 10 items, or five bidders? These are several orders of magnitude more complex than the existing analytical and computational results. Yes? I think the people left, so we have Yes, to that's true. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how do you explain the rules of your allocation auction to the participants? 
how how does um, well okay so great question um, one thing I will I will point out before I try to answer is that Google is using GSP yes. but which is the general a second price rule for selling adverts but there's a lot of special magic things happening there that they don't explain. Like a lot of what's happening is they're predicting quality scores. They're predicting reserve prices. There is already, not another excuse for what I'm doing, but there's already, or well, maybe I'm using it as one, well, there's already a lot of black box stuff happening. They say it's GSP, you know, Nobel winning, but this is a lot of stuff they're not describing because they have all the secret sauce around the machine learning techniques. So that's one response. Uh, you know, multi-billion dollar markets that I would argue are pretty opaque. Um, so they give a lot of simulation, right? So they give their bidder yes, the opportunity to simulate a ton that's true. and learn true. Uh, what the patterns yep. are. Yeah. Second response would be that um, I think we want to be thinking about moving to a world where a lot of the bidding and participation is automated um, and not, 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 involving, not involving humans. My second response, that, that again, doesn't remove the need for some kind of explanation, I think, but I think it helps a lot. And then the third response is, um, I, I want to agree with you, and I want to simply say that there, 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 there is a de rapidly developing interest on interpretable models within machine learning. And the point I made earlier about wanting to import progress as it's made, I just want to say, I, like, I hope that to the extent that it is important, we can do that here. One thing that we are doing is that we have other architectures that will end up generating pictures with really exact lines. Um, I haven't shown them to you here. And we can actually use those to help theorists to refute or confirm conjectures they have about the topology of optimal designs. So I don't think this thing needs to be completely black box. I think for simple settings, we can. I, I showed you some visualizations. Notice that I'm not showing you visualizations now because I, I mean, I haven't tried very hard, but obviously it will get harder and harder to visualize. There's, it, it, it's a great question, and the answer is I think it's going to be an important part of the agenda, but I do think there will be settings where we may, want, we may be willing to trade off much better performance and simplicity for participants because I'm getting strategy proofness. You have to trust me. You have to yeah, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> you have to believe me. Yes. And that's where there could be good synergies with computer science techniques to try to kind of establish through possibly crypto style techniques that I am running the function that I claim to be running um, so that if I can combine trustworthiness with strategy proofness, that could be very powerful. That's actually an interesting point. Of course, we can publish the design and let people play with it, but you still have to believe that I'm using that design. But I think we can think about ways to get that to work. Yeah. My question is related to Kiara's um, and to your point about automated bidders. So, what do you have to know to even have a rig Say it again, Carlos. What sorry. do you have to know to, ha to be able to compute your regret? Because it seems to me that... As a bidder. As a bidder. Yeah. So this is this very strong notion. You have to know everybody else's bids. It's a very strong notion. It's often, you know, so I like it very much because it's that strong. 
but no, you're, it's very strong. But you're it's right also, that it's... You know, it's, it's thinking strategically is a bitter mm -hmm. yep. whether to be truthful or not. Yeah. Uh, if I don't know, if I know I'm not going to know everyone else's bids, yeah. uh, then how would I ever know I regretted my own bids? Yeah, that's right. Is it, is it fair? Is that no, that, that's, that's, um, that's fair. Now, if you can learn them after the fact, then... Then okay, so, so some government auctions and things you could, you right. could test the yeah. Although government functions, actually so spectrum auctions, they typically don't reveal the bids. It's an interesting thing. Well, I mean, it, it would seem to me a, a kind of piece of the design, and and I understand you want to have a stronger get function, yes. and then you want to claim that your strategy. Works. Yes. Yes. But I, unless you reveal to me all the other bids, I you can't won't know. Check that. That's claim. true. That's true, but um, I think the basic tenets here that we're leveraging within economic theory is that people people should know the rules of the game that they're playing. Um, I, I, I don't want to move completely away from like the standard framing, um, and here the rules of the game are a little bit complicated to describe. Uh, okay, if it's okay, let, let's move on, um, and then we talk a little bit about scaling up. So what about scaling to three bidders, 10 items, or five bidders? Um, one thing we needed to do here was we needed to do what's called cross-validation to see what type of complexity of network we need. So this is just showing you on some validation data that we don't use for training. Uh, one hidden layer, 100 units per layer, up to seven hidden layers, 100 units per layer. Um, the minimum regret here was five by 100. Um, and you can also see the revenue up here as well. So I'm going to show you five by 100 architectures for the scaled up results. Um, and we um, were able to get higher revenue for these, these designs, three by 10, five by 10, than again, the relevant either item-wise or the bundled Myerson designs with low regret. The regret ticked up a little bit but also the value on the table has ticked up. So the regret kind of relative to value on the table is still, is still small. Um, it's, I think it's a little bit hard to convey like how, like how we think this result is interesting, because I'm just showing you a table of results. But I, I, I guess what I want to say is that not only have the analytical results been very limited, as I did explain, but the previous computational results have not really gone behind, have not gone beyond around uh, two bidders and three items. So this is really considerably larger than things that people have been able to solve before. How long does it take to solve? So this one takes 13 hours to train um, on one GPU. We're not using multiple GPUs, we're just using one GPU. And what I want to say is that in contrast, a linear program takes more than a week for even a two bidder, three item setting. Uh, when, we, when we send this paper to places, one reviewer keeps asking us, well, what about linear programs? What about integer programs? So we bit the bullet and we did some calculations <laughs> and did some work. It's and it's, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a lot more cumbersome because these things grow exponentially um, in the uh, number of bidders and potentially the number of items. Um, so I think this is reasonable. I, I, I think the way to frame this is you only have to solve your design problem once and then you reap the benefit lots of times. Uh, okay, what else can we do? Um, let me briefly tell you some of the things we can do. Uh, this is a very flexible framework. So we can also ask, 
What about budget-constrained bidders? This is a literature on this in economic theory. If you're budget-constrained, then the standard model says that you have utility if you pay less than your budget. If I charge you more than your budget, your utility is minus infinity. Not good. You cannot find the money. You're very unhappy. Um, and what was known about this, it was not known analytically how to optimally sell even a single item to two or more bidders. That's the state of the theoretical literature on revenue optimal budget constraints auction design. One item to two bidders, not known. Why, why so hard? Because there are two pieces of private information, V and B. Mathematics, thanks. Most of the mathematicians than I have not been able to solve. Uh, so what we can do is we can generalize RegretNet to handle this case. All, with, all that we do is we redefine Regret to emit deviations above budget. That's, what we, that's essentially what we need to do. Um, so here, here, uh, here's, here's a slightly different picture than the one I've been showing you so far. This is one of the optimal, pretty much one of the only optimal results in the literature by Che and Gale, where there's one bidder, one item, value uniformly <coughs> distributed and budget uniformly distributed. And this is the density plot showing the probability of allocating that one item to that one bidder. And uh, when we trained our network, this was the picture we got. Um, and you can see it's not visually exactly the same, but you can see that the network has learned, looks like a reasonable caricature of the structure. Um, and I believe when we look at the revenue, the revenue will be very competitive to the optimal design. So again, I thought this was encouraging. Um, and uh, actually, here's the revenue. This is test revenue as we train. This is the Che Gale optimal results. And this is our regret over time as we train. Um, and now we can say, okay, what about two budget constrained bidders, four items? And you kind of know where this is going. So we can test against the posted price benchmark or an algorithm by Jennifer uh, Chase and Christian Borgs and others. Um, and we can see we're getting best we're getting better revenue than other things we can compare to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, is there any, have you considered using other machine learning tools? So like you're using the deep learning kind of neural net kind of structure here. Would there be any benefits from trying to use something different, like some kind of tree or so, something different and then combining? Um, I think it's definitely plausible. Um, we, want, we want something that can give me highly configurable, like what's beautiful about the neural network uh, structure these days is that because the TensorFlows and the PyTorches exist, that it's just a few lines of code to kind of capture, for example, that feasibility structure, the softmax across. Um, so, you know, I don't want to rule out other approaches, but I think that neural network frameworks do have an advantage at the moment if, not, if for no other reason than there were very flexible toolkits to code the models in. And also, you know, just to remind you that we're not looking for kind of a classifier or something like that. We're looking for a mapping from a continuous space to a continuous space. So it's like a little bit of a strange animal that we want to be able to capture through our architecture. So uh, your goal on this paper seems to be to find a strategy for design. Um, but I'm wondering if that would really be the goal of, let's say, Google. Um, 
bitters are not completely rational. They have cognitive limitations, and they might not necessarily figure out the optimal bidding strategy, especially if it's fairly complex. It would seem like what you're trying to do here, you could build in some amount of irrationality on the bidder side, and that might actually be a, you know, a huge gain for Google if you're able to take advantage of that. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I uh, kind of want to agree and not agree. I, 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 I agree that one interesting generalization of this work is to build other models of rationality into the framework. And um, at the moment, you're exactly right that, that through the regret model, we're driving towards strategy proofness, we're driving towards something that looks like a dominant strategy equilibrium. If you believe that people are doing that in a different way, um, I believe, for example, you can kind of see it pretty explicitly through the adversarial way that I set things up. Yes, you could drop in other decision rules there. Um, um, now, would Google want to do something like that? Let me not talk to Google specifically, but I, I think the way I often think about these things <laughs> is that I, you know, I do a lot of work with, e with equilibrium assumptions, but I don't typically want to assume that people will play the equilibrium, at least initially. And I don't typically want to assume that people will go ahead and figure out all the counter speculation and figure out what they should do. Um, in some other work, for example, I've used replicated dynamics as a way to model the adjustment learning dynamics of a system to see if, if the population learning dynamics will move towards the truthful point. So I, 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 I tend to think about the world more like that, that is, you design for the fixed point, but you don't necessarily assume that people will snap into the fixed point. And you do assume over time, particularly within the, the, the sponsored search engine world, there's quite a lot of sophistication, of course, around the edges there, a lot of algorithmic engines that are bidding on behalf. You want to maybe assume that they'll find the equilibrium over time. And maybe what you care about, and we haven't tried to do this here yet, is designing systems that are learnable, so, such that somehow the population will find the point that you want. Um, but it, it's a great question. I, 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 I try to be very open-minded about these things. Yeah. One thing you convinced me of is that this is an area where humans shouldn't be allowed to bid. It's <laughs> 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 clearly something that you were, you know, <laughs> it's just no point. Uh, and, and then the machines can figure out and, and probably the, you know, pro probably the world will come to your view, which is that regret should be small enough so that it's not worthwhile, given the computation on the other side, to second guess yeah. the, the algorithm. But you don't, you don't need perfection, you just need like a, a cost function on discovering your regret. That's right, and, and, and some people have actually tried to model that this exactly that way, by adding a cost piece and then arguing that um, now, in a sense, you recover the truthful equilibrium by saying that the cost of thinking about manipulation. Mm. Oh, there were some other questions, yeah. Um, you said that in training this network right now, you're using one per regret particle and kind of seeing if that gets to Yes. Two. Do you have a sense of? One per agent per profile. Okay. Do you have a sense of it, if the, is, is that good enough in general, or are there cases in which there could be an optimal strategy that maybe yeah. you don't converge yeah. to? 
this is, this is one of the places where we've done most of our computational work. Most of our experiments have been around looking to see if we're doing the right thing there. There are a lot of optimizations you can make. You could have 10 particles, each moving five steps, or one particle moving 25 steps. You could warm start the particle from round to round. There are lots of different things you, that you can do. Um, <clears throat> we've experimented fairly extensively. This seems to be a sweet spot. That's one of the things I, I meant when I said that, you know, we've done some work to tune this thing up, but now we're not tuning it for each new result. Um, so yes, I think there are lots of things one could do there to try to improve performance. And it's very important, it's, it's very important to get that right to be able to robustly drive regret down. Um, please, Sorry. yeah, Krishna. Um, how sensitive are the parameters of the model to the different bitter valuations yes. you're pulling? Because it seems to me like if you report here on what the actual regret is from the 10,000 samples you trained. What yes. if you take 10,000 samples yes. elsewhere in the distribution, ran it through the same parameter yes. model, then what is regret? Yes, I love the question and we haven't looked yet, <laughs> but we should. It's, it's like these robustness questions are things that we need to look at next. Because yeah. I'm curious on like that's over time, like a second price auction that's clear to everyone what it mm -hmm. is. Yep. And so the strategy proofness makes sense, but yeah. if it's only strategy proof for a fixed set of... Yeah. One other thing that I will say on that is that we're currently working on importing some theory back into the networks. So we can import, for example, agent independence. Remember I said that Vickery's design is strategy proof because your bid doesn't control, because conditioned on you winning, the price you pay doesn't depend on your bid. Yeah. So that's very easy architecturally for me to build in here. I just need to drop an edge so that your mm -hmm. price doesn't depend on your own report. Mm -hmm. So we haven't, oh, we're working on these idea. things right now. So yeah. we, can, we can actually begin to drop some simple ideas from economic theory back in cool. as a way to make things more robust. Yeah. So I wonder if you could also modify the network in order to try and explore theory more. So I'm thinking about, like, you could, I, I could imagine you adding edges into the graph that are known. You're like, this edge is always going to be a one. Or this is always this other thing is always going to represent the value of your bid mm -hmm. later on, in the, mm -hmm. and so that you could look and see does the network converge to making that node mm -hmm. really important or having a you know particular value around the connection to that node, like oh half of your mm -hmm. bid or something like that, where you would you could actually maybe read back from the network sort of the, almost a theory equation mm -hmm. for what actually you've come to. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting direction. One of the things we played a little bit with but haven't had great success yet is pre-training. Um, so you can imagine trying to pre-train with label data, where the label data maybe comes from Vickery or Vickery Clark Groves or First Price or um, kind of pre-train as a way to accelerate training. We haven't actually, I don't think we've tried super hard on that yet, but it's, it's a little bit of your flavor. We don't lock things down, but you pre-train and then start from there. This is something that's quite popular in other parts of ML at the moment. Uh, yeah, that's the question. And I think right now we haven't, I don't think we've played with it very much yet. Um, let, me, let, me, let me just broaden out. I, I, I did just want to kind of give you a sense of some of the things that we're now thinking about, about other things that could be in reach. I mean, of course, there are lots of optimal economic design questions. And I think, in fact, the title of my talk didn't say revenue optimal auctions, because I think about this more broadly than revenue optimal auctions. Um, um, Matching problems. So we're working with Scott Cominance right now. I'm sure a lot of you know Scott. Uh, Scott's an expert on matching, of course. And, um, um, you know, there are lots of things we don't really know. We know, for example, that there's an impossibility result that says that 
you cannot have stability and strategy proofness. Uh, okay, well then, um, if I want stability, what's the most, most incentive compatibility I can get? Or if I want strategy proofness, what's the most stability I can get? These types of trade-offs are things that we just don't understand in the current theoretical literature. Um, assignment problems without money are also, I think the way I think about this is that we often don't have grand theories for how to solve these problems. We have point solutions. So for this, for example, um, you know, lots of people talk about the way the Harvard Business School lets students access courses and the snake mechanism. And, 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 and there's some theory on that, and it's a nice mechanism, but I, I don't know that there's kind of an optimality result per se. Um, social choice questions. Contract design, I think, might be some of the most interesting directions for this work. Uh, you know, beautiful literature, um, and I, and I don't know it very well, but I think, again, the caricature that I think is true is that most of the results are for one-dimensional problems. And so can you use this framework to design optimal contracts for problems that have been out of the reach of the theoretical literature for a long time? I don't know. We haven't tried to work on it, but I think there are lots of things that you can try to do with this now. Um, we have worked on a facility location problem along... Um, a multi-facility location problem. I'm not going to spend any time on it other than to tell you that we do have an Ichikai paper on this. Um, it's an even simpler network. The inputs are the, the location you want the facility. The outputs are the location of each of the facilities. We penalize regret. There's no money now. Um, this is a problem that doesn't have good theory for. And, uh, you know, we learn generalized median style mechanisms. If you know anything about this literature, we're kind of learning to place the facilities at the 25th percentile, the 50th percentile, the 75th. The, the things you would expect to happen are happening. Um, okay, so a little bit of discussion. We've already talked about quite a few of these things. It's been, it's been great. I think that, um, I, I, I do think interpretability is going to be uh, important in some contexts. And I, for example, I certainly um, would not advocate, at least today, something that looks like this framework for a uh, large, very public project like selling wireless spectrum. I do think that this could be interesting to digital platforms like the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, where I think things are already perhaps in a way we don't like, but I think they are somewhat opaque. Um, so I think this could be of interest there, but I think robustness will be very important to drive adoption by those platforms. Um, one thing that I should be clear about is that we have approximate incentive compatibility. We, ha we have, our, our, our notion is minimize expected ex post regret. Ex post regret means you know what other people are doing, and then we take the average of that. What we do not say, and what um, we would love to be able to say, but we have not found a way to do it, we do not say that for any one input, the regret will be smaller than some epsilon. That's what we're unable to say. We're only able to say that in expectation, you will leave only a very small amount of money on the table. But it could be that there's one particular input that you find out about where because our thing somehow was not smooth for some reason, that there was a lot of money on the table. 
I don't know that that's a problem, but I don't know that it's not a problem. Can't you find it out, though? I mean, someplace in your model, there, um, the points are being calculated. The problem is, is that we only sample. So we don't look everywhere, and it's a continuous input space. That's the problem. That's why, that's why we have a hard time. It's hard even to provide generalization guarantees to say something about this. So but, but even, you know, let not the perfect be the enemy of the good. I see. Can we, can we at least measure this? And that's a really with good enough, point. With, with enough, yeah. you know, with, with close, I mean, with tight enough sampling. I think we've looked at that, and I think it looks okay, but I have to double check. I mean, yeah. you, you would yeah. get a sense of... I think it's okay, know, actually, when uh, we have looked. And then there might be some nice continuity yeah. somewhere. Yeah, totally agree. Mm -hmm. And then we're interested in scaling this up. We're interested on Chiara's question of having one network that generalizes. Um, we have some theory. We have a generalization band for regrets that implies low regret on test data with high probability. Uh, we're interested in exploiting symmetry. I think this can handle things like stability and matching, MV-freeness, if you care about that, group strategy proof type properties. I think it can guide theory. We've been trying to use it that way. So to conclude, um, a new use of deep neural nets for optimal end-to-end -end economic design. Um, it's a data-driven approach. We can solve problems currently out of reach of economic theory. Um, it's very important that we're adopting in-expectation objectives. Those are the ones that fit well with learning. Um, and it's flexible. And the, the tagline I've been using for this is differentiable economics. And what I mean by that is that you, you want your economic rules to be things with, with respect to which you can take a gradient. Differentiable economics. If I have differentiable economics, I can use stochastic gradient descent, which I want to use right now. Okay, so those are the papers we have on this. Uh, thanks for your attention.